This is Ibarian X, and welcome to The Candid Frame. We're pleased to announce the release of the first in a series of TCF branded ebooks for 2015. The Candid Frame on Street Photography is a book in which I share tips and techniques that have helped me to develop as a street photographer. And I'm sharing it with you for free. Just sign up for the Candid Frame mailing list by visiting the website or clicking on the link in the show notes. This episode of the Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace. It's the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME. Though New York is often touted as the epicenter of street photography, Los Angeles is home to its own collection of talented and committed photographers. It's always fascinating to discover the images of other street photographers capturing their own unique perspective of areas that I've spent years photographing myself. John Free is one such photographer who's been making images of Los Angeles years before the explosion of interest in street photography. If you've seen any of his videos on YouTube, you already know of his passion and love for photography, the street, and simply telling stories. I've been aware of him for years, but it was only a chance encounter in downtown LA a few weeks ago that provided me the opportunity to finally meet him in person. We started by asking him what makes photography such a magical process for him. The magic? Oh, just crazy things that happen. I mean, one is that I've got a camera in the other room, an old Nikon F, that I photographed my son's first breath of life with and uh, gave it to him when he was 20 years old and he photographed his daughter's first breath of life. Twice, two daughters. And that camera was also used in uh, 24 Hours in the Life of L.A. Project, which is a, a book that came out. And I photographed a birth for that project. So the, the old camera sitting in there all dented up, but it's photographed for a very important instance in someone's life. And to look at the camera, you'd never know that. But it was there, and it brought so much love and understanding to me about what could be done with a camera and how powerful it makes anybody that picks one up and studies it to give out the love, the power that comes on your shoulders when you hold a camera and you want to do a good job and you want to give out messages of life and love and feel so great that you have the power to do that. I mean, that's what I've always enjoyed about uh, watching your videos, is that you move beyond the mechanics of the of the camera about what it does. Yes, it takes a picture, but it's capable of doing so much more in terms of communicating, in terms of expressing something. Um, when when did you discover that for yourself as as a photographer? When did you find that photography was more than just making a picture that you could actually? reach someone in a really deep way? Well, I guess when I saw the work of Cartier-Bresson, Robert Frank, and Gene Smith, when I started in uh, Christmas Day, 1969, 
in Germany. My wife and I were backpacking around Europe for six months, you know. And we bought a camera on Christmas Eve, and I couldn't, I couldn't let it go. Hmm. My first roll of film, I'm still selling three images from that roll of film. Wow. Some of my best work on that first roll of film. And I don't know what, what it is. I just found out recently that my father was a photographer for a while. I never knew that. Oh, wow. <laughs> Who knows? How'd you find that out? My sister, my older sister, finally told me. <laughs> <laughs> but he gave it up, I guess, before I was born. Ah. But I saw the chemicals down in the basement when I was a kid, and I used to mix them together playing chemist. I didn't know what they were. Oh, Okay. But now the smells are familiar in my dark room. <laughs> and, you didn't put, and you didn't put two and two together until no. it was just, wow. I had no idea. <laughs> that's, that's really funny. When, when you started taking pictures in that, you know, that, in that trip, when did you start thinking about, this? I want to do something with this, other than just making the occasional photograph? When did you feel like, I really want to make this a big part of my life? Right then. Right then? The first day... My wife and I took some pictures that Christmas Eve night when we got back with the camera. We put it on a stand by the... We were in this little room that we were staying in in Germany. We put the camera on the bureau with the automatic timer. You know, took pictures of us. But then in the morning I went out and it had snowed and I took a landscape picture. And I said, I said, boy, this is fun. You know, this is fun. And then... I just never put it down. I just never stopped. This is just so stimulating for me to realize what I could maybe do with this thing. And you go next door to your next door neighbor and you photograph his children on your knees and you give him those pictures and you look at his eyes. And then you know the power. Well, I use this, this story in, in class for 25 years. I've used the same story. There's an old lady that lives next door. Nobody likes her. Her house is a mess. Her yard is terrible, and she's kind of crazy. But now that you're a photographer, and you listen to me when I when I try to tell you the secret of it, and the secret is to jump over her fence, and she you see her over there. Her 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 nephew Tommy is visiting her for a day. He's eight years old. He'll only be there for today. And you jump over and. And you say, hi, I'm, I'm taking a photography course. And you get down on your hands and knees and you photograph her and him and the love and the vibrations between the two. And then you go to the drugstore and you get twin pics made of the prints. Mm -hmm. And two days later, you bring them back. Well, Tommy's gone now. She's all alone. And you hop over the fence again and you give her the pictures. And you look at her eyes. And you realize that you're crying and she's crying. And she's going to take them inside of her house and she's going to put them up on the mantelpiece and she's going to have Tommy for every day or for short life because of you, because of me, because I did that. That no one can take away from you. That is the true power. You've given something of tremendous value and it took you five minutes. Yeah. When you're taking a look at the work of the people that you mentioned, uh, W. Gene Smith, Robert Frank, um, what did you see in those photographs that made you feel like I want to aspire to what they're what I, they're doing? It's not so much what I saw; it's what I felt when the tears started running down my cheeks. And the terrible life that Jean had, 
You know, he made 13 invasions with the Marines. No Marine ever made 13 invasions. The Marines in World War II maybe made three at the most, mm -hmm. and they went home. He made 13 of them, and he carried records and record players with him. And he right. got his head shot off almost on my son's birthday in 1945 in Okinawa. I served at the same place where he got shot for 13 months in the Marines. It's, he, I think my son and I talked back and forth. I think he was the greatest photographer that ever lived. I used to say Brisson, but my son said, no, Gene did more for humanity. Yeah. He laid his butt on the line and, and, and just a magnificent photographs. You know, he had like 300 published photographs before he was 17. <laughs> yeah, he was he was impassioned, he was obsessive, he was it was an amazing thing to see uh when you see his work and you know the story behind them. Because he sacrificed so much, like you said, of his personal life and his physical life in order to make those 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 images. Did did you feel that for what you wanted to do that you had to make Sacrifices, maybe not to the extent that Smith did, but in order to to make the images that you want, that you had to make some hard choices. No, not really. the The camera pulls me, the strap pulls me. You know, I spent ten years in the LA freight yards, a very, very dangerous place, photographing railroad tramps up close every day for ten years. You know, and it's very dangerous. I go to a lot of dangerous places, and I, I, I I've never been touched. But Alphabet City in New York in the early 80s, you know, being surrounded, making believe I had a gun to get the guys to leave me alone, you know. Almost getting run over. Uh, a lot of documentary work that I've done was pretty dangerous, you know. Well, tell me about the railroad, railroad, railroad work. <laughs> I got it, I got it. Because um, that's the first work that I became familiar with uh, of your work with. How, why did it get started, and how, and how did it, and how did you start the, you know, the, the process of making images of those people near downtown? I met a man on Alvera Street one day, a, a dusty old man, drinking out of a paper bag. And I talked to him, and he said, "I just came in on a freight train." And I said, "Gee, I'd like to see that." He says, well, "I'll meet you down there tomorrow at the freight yards, and I'll show you around." And that was Elmer. And that started, I mean, the, the clothes, the lifestyle, the, the, the power in their faces and the terrible tragedies of their life. I couldn't get away. I even opened a business down there. I moved my body shop. I restore antique cars and, and, okay. uh, for 35 years. I moved my business down there so that uh, I could be close and I'd go every day and uh, became friends with a lot of them. And a lot of them would come back year after year. Did you see the picture of the of a man, I went down there a few years ago just to look around again. And I'm walking down the railroad tracks and I hear this guy say, hey John, what are you doing? And I recognized the voice instantly and I turned around and there was Kelly. And uh, he came up and grabbed me and put me in a headlock and with the other hand he reached in his pocket and he pulled out a picture that I gave him 27 years before. He carried the photograph as a tramp in his pocket for 27 years. You couldn't even make it out. I've got an image of it, but it's all crinkled up the picture. Yeah. He says, John, you gave me this picture, and I've never forgotten it. 
So photography can do strange things. Yeah, I was watching that video this morning, and it was just oh. amazing to think that a, a photograph that you make had such an impact on someone's life, especially someone who had relatively so little as compared to us. Exactly. And that he treasured that picture. I mean, I, I can't imagine how moved you must have been when you saw that photograph uh, pulled out of his pocket. I'm, I just, you're always ready. I'm, I try to always be ready. Always. Wherever I go, I got that camera. The other day, I, I have a, up a, a nephew's son who's a tragedy, a, men, a medical tragedy. He, he shouldn't have lived. Now he's 16, and I got a shot of him the other day. He had a big coat on, and he looked like a big guy now. I took the picture and gave it to him. Boom. Now he sees himself as a real boy, not just a real yeah. thin, sickly person. And his whole family loves that picture. And I gave him many copies, and they put it all up. And he said, he said, Uncle John, he says, that's the greatest picture I've ever seen of me. Hmm. It shows him as a normal person. He had a big windbreaker on North Face, it said. You know, it looks real masculine. That I can do. That I can give. When you were doing the, the stuff in the rail yards, you were doing that over a period of 10 years. So how did that, how did the work evolve as you started shooting there and, and getting to know the various characters? What, what did you want to capture? What did you want to say with the work about those people and about that life that you think was going, going unsaid? I found out that they're really nice people. But they're not regarded as such by society. They're on the outside. They're on the fringes. They're walked down by the tracks. They try to be unseen because they're bad. Your mother tells, keep away. He's a bum. He's a bum. He's no good. Stay away. But they're not. There are uncles and brothers. And they've been tragically harmed by some terrible thing in their life. The war, the woman, and the bottle. And they, they can't stand it. And so they strike out and they try to leave it behind. And they're searching, searching men. And I was there with them. And I cried with them. And I held their hands. And I hugged them. And I watched them die. And I watched them get beat up by the police. And I saw all kinds of terrible things. I could not stop that. I could not get away from that. You know, if the basics of a coward is knowing what the right thing to do is and then not doing it. And I wanted to show these people, the society, that these are nice people. They have their stories, and we need to help them, and we need to realize that they're not bad people. Tramps are really nice people. They're not hobos. They're not bums. You know, tramps work, hobos don't, and bums can't. That was the old adage. Mm. But, boy, did I meet some people, Hollywood actors that had been in prison for murder and just all kinds of People, one old man says, I wrote a book once called Tramp, Tramp, Tramp. I haven't found it yet. Mm -hmm. Mr. Newman. Yeah, I know you're not around anymore, Mr. Newman, but that was a wonderful day we spent together. <laughs> I'm a crybaby. You know? <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. It, it, you know, it seems like when I think about photographs, I, I often think about the memories associated with them. And that seems to be, that's the case with you. That when you look at your photographs, you look at them as really good photographs, but you are so in sync with what you were feeling, where you were, 
at the moment that you made the photograph. Oh, yeah, that's what makes it so hard for me to tell if it's a good photograph or not, because we're so connected to it. So how do you, how do you do that then? If you have such a strong feeling about the character, about the person, about the moment that you experience, how do you how do you objectively determine that the photograph is a good photograph? I don't know. I have help. My forty three year old son is a photographer, and so I've I've got him. He can look at it freshly. You know, I used to take him down there when he was two years old. You know. Mm. But uh, I don't know how to how to look at the at a print. I don't know how to look at really anybody's print. I look for three things in my photographs. I've got to have three things going on that relate to each other in a circle somehow, or else I don't. I, don't, I leave it alone. It's just a guide for me, and it's what I teach sometimes. It's a guide that I give people. You know, the photographs have to be difficult. If you're hanging around with a group of kids and you're on a skateboard and you say, watch this, it better be a difficult trick on that skateboard because they're, they're going to laugh at you if it's not. Mm -hmm. well, that's how I feel in photography. Every one of Cartier-Bresson's photographs was very difficult for him to make. So why do easy? You know, but like you say, when you're emotionally involved with a photograph, it's hard to see it for what it is. And the great thing is my son pulls photographs out and says, Dad, you didn't even like this. This is one of your greatest pieces of work. The girl running away, 15 years old, running away from home, and I took her picture. And uh, I put it away. I'd never used it. And Scott saw it and said, this is the one, man. Yeah. I love what you're saying about... Um making difficult photographs, being willing to make photographs, not making the easy ones. You know, it's, it's, you said it and I say, and I tell it to my own students. It's like, don't shoot so much. Think about what you're seeing, what you're feeling. So when you make the photograph, it means something. It's a good photograph, but it has some sort of impact. And if you're just snapping away, hoping that you get something good, more than likely you won't get it. And if you do get it, It'll be lucky, but you'll never be consistent. You'll never be able to reproduce that every time you go out. You still shoot film. You're not shooting hundreds and hundreds of rolls. You go out there, you know, with only a finite number of exposures available to you. Uh, how how important is that for the way that you you produce your pictures? Well, it's very important. In all my other occupations, I've got about six different occupations. You know, that I'm a carpenter, I'm a welder, metal man. Uh, Custom car painter, carpenter, wooden boat restoration expert, model maker, voiceover guy, mm -hmm. actor, writer. And so I learned from each one of those things. Car restoration, carpentry. You don't drive the nail until everything is measured and plumbed up. You don't push the button on the camera guessing. Everything has got to be flowing through your mind and get these things going, the different elements in the photographs and of course the timing but you can't control the timing that's one thing i learned it, it seems to go off by itself yeah <laughs> yeah in another one of your videos you were talking about all the decisions you're making even before you've pressed the shutter release button yeah you know you're looking at the background you're looking at the relationship of the subject to the background you're looking for distractions you're looking at the light here and the person walking into the shadow and how that ends up changing exposure all of these things are running through our minds when we're trying to make a photographs. And I love that you put, you put that out there because it becomes more about 
what's in here, what's in your head, than anything that's happening in the camera. Yes. Well, it, it, look at any one of Brisson's photographs, and you'll see how many things he was thinking about. And so yeah. I learned from them. So, it is. It, 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 it's a mind game. And I, I tell people, you got to build a room in your brain. You know, there's lots of rooms in your brain. But there's a lot of rooms in there that you don't even know exist. Like you've got a room in there for riding a bicycle. When you, when you get on the bicycle, okay, everything, you go to that room and all your knowledge about riding a bicycle is there for you and you ride away on the bicycle. I'm working with a lot of younger kids now trying to explain it simply to them in that manner. So you build a room of photography. All your studies of Brisson, Frank, and all your experiments and everything are in that room that you can bring back any time. And you have to keep working on that room because you know how important this is. You know how wonderful this is. This is the greatest thing most people will ever do in their lives, the most important thing they will ever do in their lives because we're little people. We don't have power. But the camera gives us license and power. If we shine it and point it in the right place with, with our heart, mostly with our heart, what can I do today that will be good with this camera? It's the next door neighbor's kid is the start. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's a poet. You know, a lot of people take pictures and they never show them. That's like a poet writing poetry and never handing it out. So what I do is I want all my photographs to be a visual poem, just a message for someone in India that doesn't speak English, and they can see it and laugh and email me and say, yeah, John, that's what I think too. Yeah. Uh, Nancy Lehrer, who's a friend of mine, and who recently... Who that? Nancy Lehrer. She's, oh, she, she, oh I, I, she was a fantastic oh, photographer. Yeah. And she was telling me that as part of this project that she was working on, that you encouraged people to go find a story. And I want to talk to you about that idea because a lot of people are really into street photography now and don't think of story. And I think that in a lot of your pictures, even though they're quote-unquote street photographs, they involve story. Tell us why that's important to you. Uh, you know, people, uh, the average young photographer, and they look at the books of Frank and Smith and those people that did these great photo essays on Schweitzer. They went here, they went there. Well, they figure that's, that's not for them. They can't do that. They're just uh, a high school student. What can they do? Well, they can go next door and talk to their old neighbor who sits out in his yard every day. What did you do in a war? What did you do? And do a little article on him and take it to the local small newspaper, and they'll print it. They'll run it. Neighbor to neighbor, you could call it. Mm -hmm. And then from him, you go to an artist that lives down the street, and you do the same to him. Or you do like me, and you get on and photograph those railroad tramps. You don't need an assignment. You do it yourself. I've always, I've never been paid to do anything. I've always done it and then sold it. Just done, no one says, hi, John, we want you to go out and do this. Or I did advertising photography for 30 years, you know, and did all kinds of things like that. But most of it was my idea. And then you sell that, you know. I never wanted to be a commercial photographer. I was too busy restoring cars and making money that way and doing voices. But uh, I did a lot of commercial photography, you know, and it was great. It, 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 one thing is, is the secret why is pressure. 
Mm. When you're doing it for money, you're really frightened and scared. These people sent me out, and I can't see any of these photographs yet, you know? <laughs> And now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsors. What's stopping you from having a website to showcase your images? If it's thinking that you don't have enough time, Squarespace solves that for you. Their templates and their easy to master interface allows you to customize the site to suit your own personal taste and preference. Your site doesn't have to look like everyone else's and it's so simple to do, you'll have a stellar site in just a few hours. I want you to try it out today and discover how great your images will look on a professional looking website. And with its reasonable monthly and annual rates, you can have a web presence that's amazingly affordable. Discover how having your own website can really transform your photography. Find out for yourself by taking advantage of their 14 day free trial. You don't need a credit card, just create an account and go for it. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code Candid Frame to get 10% off and to show your support for the show. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. Being able to shoot what you want, how you want, when you want is, is incredibly liberating, especially for the kinds of pictures that we make. Uh, I think that a lot of people wonder, well, how can we make money at this? And I go, don't worry so much how you can make money at this. Do it so that it's something that you love, that you, you get excited about going out in the morning and making making art, making something that, that, that matters. Because th there's so much in life that is such a chore that if you find something that you love, that you're passionate about, um, whether or not you make money at, it's a gift. Most people don't have that in their lives. So if you find it, if you find that, yeah, it, it would be great to make money at it. But if you have that, you can't just take it for granted and, and devalue it just because you're not making a quote-unquote paycheck from it. At least that's the way I feel most of the time. Yeah, yeah, no, I don't get that either. I tell people, don't, don't, don't do this for money. Uh, you go out and you play a golf game, you want to automatically be a, a golf professional and make lots of money. It just doesn't figure you you do it because it takes you away to a different place of time and fabric you have to go into another world i'm a photographer now now i'm walking down the street and i'm scanning like a radar scope i'm working i'm working as hard as i possibly can to make wonderful pictures of ordinary things but the money comes in and it changes you because now you're working with an art director and the art director is a jerk. <laughs> so what are you going to do? I've had art directors draw on my finished photographs so they could put something of their own on it. But I stayed with it for a while. But uh, yeah, I haven't done much commercial work in a long time because I, I'm too busy restoring classic sailboats and cars and doing the voices and... So how did you balance that that time that you had dedicated to the work that allowed you to earn an income with what you wanted to do with the camera? No, it was wonderful. I had the other jobs to bring in money. I didn't have there was no pressure on my photography at all except for myself and 
I'm my own worst enemy is that, you know, I, put the, I got down there in those dirty, terrible places and rolled around with those tramps. <laughs> what was your family thinking when, you know, you're saying, I'm going to go hang out in a part of town that most people would never bother visiting to go make pictures? I have no idea. My wife is just a, a jewel of a person. I mean, how could she? I had tramps come up to the house for Christmas. I was there every day. And if I was there on New Year's Day to Christmas Day. Some of my best work was on Christmas Day. Those, those two brothers, I found them on the tracks on Christmas Day. I went down there with a friend of mine who was, just suffered a personal tragedy, and we went down there and we met these two men. They had, spent, they had been on the road for about 10 years together. One was a brother-in-law of the other one. They had left. They spent Christmas Eve in a garbage truck the cab of a garbage truck with no doors in a driving rainstorm in a parking lot in downtown L.A. And on the side of the garbage truck, it said crown disposal with a big crown on it and two kings six, sipping out of a bottle sitting in the front seat looking at pictures of a seven-year-old boy who's now 14 that they hadn't seen. And I caught up with them the next day and they were crying by the side of the tracks and I photographed them. He photographed the guy flipping the last coin around in his hand. <laughs> when you get into situations like that, you can't get away from it. <laughs> when did you decide to start teaching? Was that always a part of what you did as a photographer? or did that... I've always been a teacher. I Always. I taught body work and how to repair automobile bodies. I taught how to paint. I would take somebody that didn't know anything about it, a young person, and bring them in and train them on that. And, and, and I try to spread everything I know. I've, I've learned, I know the best car restoration experts in the world, the best body men and the best painters, they're here. You know, and, and with my photography, I could get close to them. I would photograph their cars at the car shows and make big enlargements and bring it to them. And they say, oh, John, this is great. I've never had pictures. You can hang around here anytime you want. Mm. And so I got to be friends with all these great people and learn that way to be a better person in so many different ways. But one thing trains the other. The, the car restoration makes me more analytical to photograph. You, know, you don't just start taking the car apart. you got to sit there and look at it for six hours and figure it out and bow down to it and respect it and... That's what I do with everything I do. So you, you've taught a lot of people. So what do you think is, what do you think is the hardest thing to teach people, especially those people who have been wielding a camera for a while? <laughs> well, the, I'll tell you, the hardest thing is there. I try to tell them to open up. You're not asking any questions. Do you know that in all my years, no one has ever asked me. John, what kind of a camera do you think I should get for this kind of work? No one. No one has come up to me and say, John, you know, I'm taking your class and everything, but let me ask you a question. How do you do it? No one has ever asked me that. There's a problem. There's animosity. There's jealousy. There's weird stuff going on there. We're going to get a $9,000 camera. And, of course, it doesn't even work. You know, there's no focus on it. Or, you know, they just don't. They're not really into it. They're into more what people think of them, I think, a lot of people. But I, I don't know. It's, there's not enough questions. 
And, and, and Brisson said that's the most important thing. To be asking questions. No, it's it, not to ask questions. He said it's all a question. There's never mm. any answers. I showed his video, you know, for 25 years. When I taught at PCC and around this area, I showed the same video. It's got a big question mark on it. He says, there's no answers. There's only questions. Every one of his pictures that you look at, there's no answers. It's a mystery. It's like, what, what are they doing there? Where's he going? Why is he jumping over that puddle? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it draws you in. It makes you wonder about that moment, who that person is. It makes you wonder about life when it's a really good photograph. Right. Yeah. And then I, then I look at it as a photographer, and I chuckle a little bit, and I think, well, the guy jumping over the mud puddle, that could have been the 15th person that he watched. <laughs> he could have stayed there for an hour, you see. But the genius is that the foot didn't hit the puddle. And in the background, there's a poster on the wall that shows a dancer doing the same move that the puddle jumper yeah. is doing. Now, that's, you can't beat Brisson. That's, that's magic. That's the magic we're talking about. That's it. I, I laugh because now he's up there, Brisson, and I, and I tell people, you know, when you're working hard, he sees you. He'll give you something nice. <laughs> I like that. We... Um, Tell me about the project that you were working on, because I bumped into you downtown Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago, and you've been working on a book project in which you involved a bunch of uh, local photographers. Tell us about how this idea came about and, uh, and what it's going to be. My son, Scott, and I have been teaching for, together for a long time, and we found out that when you give them a specific, the students, when you give them a specific assignment, you tell them to go out and do this, the work is twice as good as if you just let them go and photograph on their own. And so we wanted to create a situation. Well, this was all Scott's idea. I mean, I've had the idea before, but he followed through and did it. We wanted to give them a project that would duplicate a professional assignment. Where the pressure comes. <laughs> <laughs> and so we did this. We took, we're going to do a book. We're going to set you out there. We're going to give you assignments. We're going to let you go by yourself. We're, 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 we want you to know that this is going to be in a book. Your picture is going to be in a book, and your name's going to be next to it. So you better get up off the couch, and you better go out there, and you do your best work. And... Then when they came over here Sunday, they all said, wow, that was so much fun. I worked so many hours this way and so many hours the other way. And that's the secret of photography. There's no real secret. It's who works harder. Smith worked harder. Brisson worked harder. And they study and they compare. See, a lot of photographers don't want to compare. I say, you've got to prepare your work to Cartier-Bresson. If you're in baseball, you got to compare your performance to whoever is the top guy in baseball. Or, or why are you even bothering with it? And you're in a 100-yard race. Are you just going to go off here by yourself, or are you going to race? And I, please, I tell people, please compare your work. You're not going to get any uh, feedback or information. And, and, and I think it was... Uh, Smith said, he says, I try for the impossible and take measure from my failure. Wow. Great quote. Ah, wow. 
But, but that, that idea of comparison, I think that to, to flesh that out a little more is not just to say that, oh, that's better and mine is worse, but to look at that, at what they did to make it effective and look at your own work and see where you are, are succeeding and where you're failing so that when you go out the next time, you don't make those same mistakes again. I think that a lot of people who get frustrated with their progress fail to do that and just repeat the same mistakes, creating the same images over and over and over again, not making any progress. And they don't realize that it's that critical assessment of the photograph is not just saying, oh, this photograph is great or it sucks. It's really taking it apart and putting it back together and understanding why it works or why it doesn't work. How did you learn that? Was it just by looking at all these other photographs of great artists and doing that sort of critique in your head? Is that the way it worked for you? No. It was all the other jobs that I've had. You know, you're a carpenter. The inspector comes in and says, okay, this is right. That's got to go. This is right. When I'm a car painter, I go to all the car shows and I compare. I look at the other paint jobs and I see who's painting them. What does my work look like compared to them? And then take measure from that. You mm. have to compare or else you're lost in the woods. Restoring boats, doing the voices. I got to work at that. Work, 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 you know. It's, you, you can only take from your, from your own experience of what you've done and what, you, what, your, what your livelihood has been and then apply it to something else. It's all the same. Settle down. Find out who's doing the best work in whatever you want to do, and then go make friends with that person. <laughs> you know, I've, I've talked, I've talked to a few people, not just photographers, who have been doing the same thing for forty years, who have as much passion and dedication as you do, because you are infectious with, with the passion and the love that you have for photography. What do you think it is that has allowed you to sort of maintain that? Because some other, other people who practice even photography get burnt out. Why isn't that an issue for you? I don't know. I had a terrible time when I was young. I'm hyperactive. When I, that's what they call it now. When I was a kid, they called it crazy, and I was crazy, and I couldn't do anything in school, and I couldn't do anything right. But I was restoring cars and painting cars at 16 years old and making things and doing things in other areas. And so now I want to work with hyperactive children and give them a camera and say, now listen, this kid can go out. He can't do very well in school, but he sure can excel at something else. And when he excels at photography and he holds that picture and he says, I did that, and it's just as good as any adult can do, what does that do for his self-esteem? when he's been labeled an idiot. That's what it did for me. You know, I did those, those paint jobs. I was doing $100,000 paint jobs 35 years ago. It's hundred grand for a paint job. It takes a year. And it's all hand mental work, block sanding figuring and the chemicals and the mixtures and the how often you put a coat of paint on and how long you let it set up. All these things I transferred over into photography. There's no BS about this. It's very, very difficult work. But it's a dance with life and it swirls you around in an embrace with what's happening in you and yourself and you're combined and you, you hold it close 
And when the picture comes out, the angels pick you up and you hear mm. trumpets play and they're carrying you down the street. I'm not kidding. That's how no, good it is. I know. I know. All too well. <laughs> I walk into your house and I see Prince in your living room. And for me, that was a rush. See all. The, I'm serious. I was wondering what you're going to think. This is a mess. Oh here. no, no. That's 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 a glorious mess to have. To have all that. To have photographs in your hand mm. that I can go through those photographs and I can, you know, feel them, smell them, you know, experience them. Um, you, as we said, you shoot film and you you create all these prints. But tell me, how important is having those prints for you? Oh, it's very strange. It's it. I I can't perceive it. It's very strange. I look at some of these prints. Where did where did that come from? You know, I the, the, one of the greatest photographs I ever took was the day my son was born. Not of him, but later after I photographed his first breath, as I told you. But then I went over to a friend's house to tell him that my son had been born. And his son came out of the kitchen and stood next to him, his two year old. And I took the picture. It's the greatest photograph I've ever made. I went home that night and I started printing it and I was crying and I said, where did this come from? And I, I really think that maybe my dead father gave me that when he became a grandfather that day. Mm. I knew I was not good enough. That was 1971. I was not good enough to make that photograph. It's, it's one of the greatest photographs I've ever seen in my life. It has everything in there that's important in life. The young kid came in out of the kitchen. There was backlight. He stood next to his father's leg. His father put his hand on the side of his face for guidance. And the son's eyes are innocent, looking straight out. He has the solidity of his father's leg, the comfort of his hand, the guidance of his hand. Mm -hmm. That's what it is, the father, the son. It, it reminds me of that photograph that I think Elliot Erwitt did while he was on assignment with... Um, and he was photographing, I guess, a cowboy. And the cowboy is sitting down to breakfast. And his son is sitting next to him. And he shot a series of images of the father and the son together. And the father is really, really intent. And then the son kind of leans over, you know, because there was just something about that relationship there where the dad was still focused, but you could see that the son was so happy to be in his dad's presence. And, and and that there was a connection there that even though there wasn't an obvious gesture, not, not, there, there wasn't obviously something happening in terms of them communicating with each other. There was that, there was that connection there, that that expressed that that relationship, that emotion that you just described. And I look at that photograph, and it's a photograph that touches me. Uh, and I think that's what we're talking about: photographs that kind of, you know. Not only look good, but make us feel good, make us ask questions. Um, those are great photographs. That's a, that's what makes a great photograph. Not just it being technically sharp or in focus. It's about it's about all those things coming together, and us having an experience where we just go, we just take a breath. So, I think that, I think I think it's part of the magic for me. Well, you you mentioned the boy made some uh, uh, connection with the father, but it wasn't them. 
It was the photographer that made the connection with the son and the father. That's true. And why? Where did that come from? Like I say, the thing goes off by itself most of the time. You get it in focus and you get it in framed and you're still adjusting it, you're adjusting the frame, then you look at the focus and you look at the frame and all of a sudden click, what was that? How did that happen? There's two parts of us. There's the subconscious, there's the bad subconscious and the good subconscious and there's subconscious we don't know about. We react to things without even knowing how or what happened. And I think that's what pushes the button. It's our subconscious that we don't know about to say, yeah, that's it now. And it's from all our experience, from all our life, and everything we've ever heard or seen, and we can't help ourselves. You've been shooting for 40-plus years now? Yeah. And do you find that after all the experiences, all the exposures that you've made, that it gets easier, or is it in some ways getting harder? <laughs> Much harder. Why? Oh, it's like Einstein when he's, he spoke at, uh, over at Caltech in, in the 30s to those people at Caltech. He says, you, you think you guys have trouble with mathematics? He says, I'm the one that's got the trouble. <laughs> it keeps getting harder and harder and harder, and so does painting cars, because that extra thing. I've never done a, a paint job that was flawless, but it would be very hard for you to find the flaw. There's no perfection. Anybody that came into my shop and wanted a job and I heard him say perfect, they was out, because he just didn't understand the process. You're exaggerating when you say perfect. There is no such thing as perfect. That's the only thing that's impossible. And someone that says perfect, they're lying or they don't have a good idea of what it is because the higher you get in any job or any endeavor, you see how much more you have to really learn. (laughs) And the photographer gets more and more difficult. Why do it if it's not difficult? Because when you know you're doing something that's difficult and you're doing it well, there's the exhilaration. Absolutely. And that's yours. And that's yours to keep. And that's yours. And they can never take that away. And and your deathbed, you got that. Yeah, I gave that picture to the kid. Well, tell me about your your son taking up photography. Um, What has that provided you in terms of satisfaction, both as a photographer and as a father? Well... It makes me very happy that it made him happy. And it's hard to know because I'm a photographer, but I I see him doing it and I learn from him and I rejoice for what he does. I'm afraid for him, you know, all those things. But boy, what he's done on this project, you know, he's very busy and, and really doesn't have time to do the printing. I did a lot of the printing for him, but what he did on this downtown challenge was just wonderful work that he did. And I didn't, I didn't know it. it had a minute. He hasn't been doing it for a while. I haven't seen him do that much work for a while. He's been doing other things. But he got to the heart of many of these things where we went on, that, on those two days. He, he, he was right in there in the heart. And it was funny because we ran into each other at different times. This big town like yeah. this. We ran into each other during those two days working, you know. Boy, crying all over the place and thinking, what a wonderful thing this is to, to be able to do. I used to think that when I restored cars. This is so much fun. How many people in this world would give their right arm to be doing what I'm doing now when I was restoring that sailboat three years all day long, every day, out of the water, working on that boat, laughing and saying, what a wonderful thing to be able to do, mm. to be able to afford to do this and preserve this very famous boat as it turned out 
it's uh, I don't, it's very it's very hard for me to understand. And I've had to look into it so that I could pass it on as a teacher. But I'll tell you something: being a teacher makes you really learn. If you're an honest person, you don't want to rip these people off. You better study and make sure you know what you're talking about. And when you do study, things come in that you hadn't thought about before. You hear your, I hear myself talking in class. I think, where did that come from? It's like I'm channeling someone. And that makes me learn. But this is the most powerful thing I think a normal person be able, will ever rise to, to be able to get this camera and go out and take pictures of that next-door neighbor's kid. And tremendous feeling it gives you in your heart. You did something for someone else, and you did it well. And just doing it makes you a better person for that in your own eyes. And very few people ever get the self-respect of that kind. That's yeah. right, yeah. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is that I ask them to recommend one photographer that our listeners can discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Brisson. Cartier Brisson. Now people say, oh, yeah, he was rich. He could go anywhere. Oh, stop it. Don't, don't care about that. He was magic. He was everywhere. Do you know that he was the last person to speak to Gandhi? No, I didn't. And do you know what Gandhi's last words were? Brisson knew everybody in the world. I mean, this guy was unbelievable. He hung around with the Kennedys, you know. Uh, so he goes, to, he goes to Gandhi, and he shows him a photograph. And I've never even seen the photograph before until recently. It's a photograph of a hearse, an old-fashioned horse-drawn hearse. Yes, I know that photograph, yeah. And Gandhi looks at it and says, death, death, death. A couple of minutes later, he was dead. So Brisson... Regardless of him being a rich man or whatever it was, he's got, oh, probably a thousand great photographs. The rest of the guys, maybe less than half of that. Gene Smith, another one. <laughs> the Jewish Museum in New York says, we want you to do a show and we want 650 prints. And he did it. Through all the booze and the amphetamines that he was using, he got helpers in there and he made the prints and he sacrificed himself in the process, and he put 650 prints up on a wall. Now, what other person has done 650 prints in, a, in an exhibition? So you have to follow those good guys. As a car painter, I followed Junior Conway down here in Linwood, the greatest car painter that ever lived. It was just unbelievable. And just seeing his work and being even a friend of his, I never asked him a question. I've known him for 35 years. I never asked him one question about technique. I just keep my eyes open. And my son says I got up to his, his level, you know, before I stopped doing it. I had to stop. It was too much for me, you know, yeah. health-wise. But then I knew I could do just about anything. When I started making model boats, I thought I could never make a model boat, those intricate little things. But you make an anchor one night, the next night you make something here, the boat builds itself. And your name is on it. And he said, it's amazing. And I did that. It's just incredible. But it's magic if you pay attention to the details. And that's what Brisson said. You look at his quote. Someone must have asked him once, how do you do it? And he said, it's all in the details. He was the master. Not a master. There's no master. But, I mean, if there was a master at writing about photography, he was the guy because he said it in very, very few words. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
when all elements combined in the fleeting when they all converge and combine that's when making a photograph is a great intellectual and physical joy you know who the hell could say something like that I didn't even get the quote right but good enough though <laughs> well John where, where can people go to find out more about you and your work well I guess on my website on website johnfreephotography.com and uh, my, my blogs and on YouTube on YouTube most definitely yeah I love that I love being able to reach out on that and it's free I don't have to, you know it's wonderful it's wonderful yeah and I'll have links for all of those uh, for people to check out so but do this do this do this you don't even have to have hands to do this you can be in a wheelchair and you can put a bulb in your mouth and squeeze that bulb with your teeth and it will take the picture but it gives you license to go away into a wonderful place and do wonderful work regardless of who you are and what your condition is. <laughs> well, thank you, John. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the show. The Candid Frame is brought to you by the generous contributions of listeners like you. To help support the work we do at TCF, please take the time to make a donation via PayPal for $10, $20, $50, or more. Your contributions have helped to make the show what it is. I'd also like to thank our audio engineer, Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com, and our music is provided by Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is the candid frame.